1989, I arrived in Chicago for the first time on a road to discovering my new home. 30 years later, I'm leaving Chicago for the desert. I'm Don Hall. Welcome to Peculiar Journeys. Got a whole lot of money that's ready to burn So get those stakes up higher There's a thousand pretty women waiting out there They're all living the devil may care And I'm just a devil with love to spare So viva Las Vegas Viva Welcome back to episode 62 of Peculiar Journeys Job Hopping and Staying Afloat this is, as I've said, Don Hall, and I hope you've been enjoying my Vegas experience. I'm starting to enjoy it quite a bit myself. Um, while I've got you on the line, if you could do me a favor, if you're interested, if you've been listening to Peculiar Journeys and especially uh, the Las Vegas experiences and you're enjoying them, um, please do me a favor, share them with somebody. I mean, if you enjoy it, you go, wow, this is great. Um, anybody that's thinking of moving uh, to anywhere, anybody that's thinking about just quitting their job and going someplace completely unknown, please share the podcast with them. I appreciate that. The second thing is, if you're a listener and you're not a Patreon subscriber, um, how about a dollar a month? How about a dollar a month? I'm not looking to make a living on this, but uh, it would be very helpful to have just your $1 a month support for the creation of everything that I'm doing, all the things that I'm doing, all the the, the, the articles that I write for Literate Ape and for Medium, for the uh, the podcast that I'm working on, your dollar would be huge. Just go to www.patreon.com slash peculiarjourneys, sign up, I'd really appreciate it. All right, on with the show. My Uncle Don, the man whom I'm named for, was a company man. He was an aeronautics engineer and was one of the thousands who designed the first space shuttle. So he, he worked for Boeing most of his life, although he told me months before his death that he'd always wanted to be a journalist, but he had a family and needed the steadiness of the corporate job, so he made that compromise. And at a certain point, my uncle had been at Boeing so long that the corporation decided keeping him on was more expensive than replacing him with someone less experienced but receiving lower pay. Uncle Don refused, and Boeing slowly marginalized him. They took away his work, his title, eventually removed his desk without even telling him, and finally threatened to relocate him to another state. He owned a house, had five kids, so moving away wasn't going to work, so Uncle Don took the blood money severance and retired. In moving to Vegas, I had assumed my experience in events production was going to be an asset. 30 years doing this should count for something, I thought. The problem I encountered is that any 25-year-old can call themselves an event planner or a social media strategist, and many of them do. So companies can either hire a kid with no experience for pennies on the dollar or go with the experienced dude but pay a living wage. What do you think they do? Well, my career path, if that's what you want to call it, is all over the place. Professional jazz trumpeter, public school music teacher, part-time construction worker, gas station attendant, non-profit theater director, producer, actor, retail tobacconist, massage school facilities manager, NPR house manager, public radio director of events, Millennium Park house manager, freelance events consultant. 
I haven't been fired from any of them, really. I'm definitely not following Uncle Don's footsteps in terms of security or stability. It makes sense, then, that my assumption of continuing on in the events field, specifically in the public media sphere, uh, well, it's probably misguided. I mean, it's never worked out that way before, so why would it work out that way now? So if not public media and not specifically events, what the flying fuck was I supposed to do for employment in this new city? Jumping off the cliff of the comfortable familiarity to the virtual unknown provides slews of perspective. The process of gaining an outlook on who you are in the world, who you think you are, and who everyone else sees you to be is both painstaking and staggering in depth. Like I said, part of me assumed that some of my street cred in the Chicago landscape would somehow make things a bit easier, the landing a bit gentler when coming to Vegas. I mean, it's still the United States, yeah? Yeah. There's Starbucks and IHOPs and 7-Elevens here, right? It's not like Nevada is another fucking planet, except in so many ways, it is. In Chicago, I'd carved out a place in the live lit and theater scenes. And while I was more notorious than anything else in many cliques of those worlds, I was known. I hosted The Moth for five years, for Christ's sakes. Except no one in Las Vegas has even heard of The Moth, and there is no live lit scene. I mean, there are maybe... You know, four open mics open to poetry, storytelling, and the like, and the rest are of the nine monthly nights are UNLV-type things. I mean, sure, there's the Black Mountain Institute, BMI, and they do some pretty cool festivals, like the Believer's Fest. But the target audience is thin. My time and energy amounts to completely starting over because no one here knows to give a shit. In Chicago, I spent a decade creating an entire events department at one of the largest public radio stations in the country and house-managed one of the most popular NPR shows in history, except that KNPR, the public radio station here, has 11,000 members and a population of 2.5 million, have produced one original event in the past three years, and no one here has even heard of that NPR juggernaut of the wait-wait stylings. In terms of the non-stop pursuit of the almighty dollar, it only helps that I was the house manager of Millennium Park. If people in Nevada know what Millennium Park is, but they don't, it's like Chicago's version of Central Park is the best descriptor I've come up with so far. In Chicago, I had my parking spots, parking spots worked out. I knew where to go to get a haircut. I had my favorite bars. In other words, I had my life hacks. Now, new to the Mojave, I've had to come up with a few new hacks to make life just a little bit easier, the transition a bit smoother. Number one, find your Starbucks. Yeah, Starbucks is the awful mega chain that puts countless independent coffee shops out of business here in Las Vegas. There are far fewer Starbucks in Vegas than in Chicago, and the indie coffee scene is percolating. That said, I'm heading to Starbucks because they offer free fucking Wi-Fi. 
When the independent places offer free internet without the hassle of getting a password or limit on my sitting on my ass writing things for three hours on my iPad pro time, I'm there. Until then, I go where the burnt coffee and the Wi-Fi lives. Number two, pretend you're in Mayberry. Las Vegas looks like a city with 2.5 million residents, but it behaves like a tiny town in the center of the heartland. As one person put it, the different communities tend to circle their rag wagons to block out new people. Given the relative newness of the city compared to much older places, combined with a strange mix of tourists, longtime residents, and transient transplants, making it here is a more delicate balance. The standard bull in the china shop approach that worked in Chicago doesn't really play here unless you have a fucking crater filled with cash or something. Three, volunteer a lot. The best way to get to know a new city is to volunteer for things you used to be in charge of. The Nevada Preservation Foundation has been a great start. I spent a day as a docent for a historic Boulder City home, met a ton of people, and enjoyed the day. Given the Mayberry-esque nature of Vegas, I met a bunch more people when Dane and I were the volunteer tour guides in the historic Binion's Casino on Fremont Street and discovered that some of those people knew the people I had met the day before, as well as folks I'd met at BMI and KMPR. And the hors d'oeuvres were pretty good. Four. Thank David and Katie for that windshield sunblock thing. God damn. You only have to get in your car and find the steering wheel so hot it burns your palms to it like a kid's tongue in a Christmas story once. Then you praise the thoughtful and pragmatic gift the Himmels gave you for Christmas. Five, off-strip casinos. I don't gamble. It's certainly fun to win money, and if I, if I ever did, I might gamble, but I don't ever win money, that is. Never win. The casino hotels on the Strip are beautiful and amazing and expensive and are designed to part you from your rubles, comrade. The off-strip casinos are still casinos, but feel more like community centers. The people watching is better because the clientele comes from the city rather than from Iowa. And while the buffets aren't as high-end, they're generally pretty good and far cheaper than the ones on the Strip. Six. Get a car phone holder that fits over the AC vent. I know this is stupid, but seriously. When, like I do, you rely on GPS to find your ass with both hands, having your phone overheat 30 seconds from getting on the road, that kick-ass phone held holder that juts up and out of, from the windshield that I had in Chicago, is more a liability than an aid. Right in front of the vent, the phone stays cool and functions, and you don't accidentally end up at Hoover Dam when you were just headed for Albertson. And finally, seven, manage your stress. They say that Americans are suffering from more depression and anxiety at early ages than ever before in recorded history. This despite the fact that, according to the woke, life was far worse in the 40s and the 50s. They also say that stress is likely a lot to do with this sad fact. When jumping off a cliff into an unknown city to start a new life, like, I don't know, pioneer on the Oregon Trail except with the Prius antibiotics and Slim Jims, finding ways to calm down, get some perspective, and remember this place is extraordinary is essential. So the best thing to do, go outside in your bare feet wearing shorts and a t-shirt every morning. Sit quietly for a few minutes at night. Look at the stars you haven't seen in decades. Go to the strip and just look at all the neon and human activity and understand that you are not important, but what you do with your limited time can be. I don't, I don't suffer from anxiety, depression, or really even a lot of stress. Perhaps it's because I don't gamble, and that explains the Han Solo hair. 
I do, however, understand the idea of readjusted expectations. I do comprehend something that the chattering voice in the back of my skull keeps yapping at me. I'm not employable, so I need to employ myself. This is not to say that I can't make money or work for a company of some stripe. It is to say that at 53 years old, supposedly the second most creative time in anyone's life in their, is their 50s, I'm the best boss I'm ever going to have. The resting in your loyal thing only works if you kept the laurels, wherever the fuck laurels are. The best life hack for my migration to the desert is writing, playing my trumpet, telling stories, creating live lit shows, meeting people, doing some grunt work, and taking my own advice instead of just giving it. Also, ignoring most of everyone else's problems because most of them give, don't give a flat fuck what I think anyway. In Vegas, I found Vicky's Diner, Big Dog Brewery, Stephanie Street, the UNLV campus, the Writer's Block, Rebar, the Buffet at Boulder Station Casino, Ninja Karaoke, a gym for $31 a month that has a pool, hot tub, sauna, and a steam room, and at least three Starbucks. I can drive to and enjoy the free Wi-Fi. So far, I'm fitting in quite nicely. Most neck, ta- neck tattoos look like shit, but that one is actually cool. Yeah, I got it in Mexico after I played a few gigs in the area. So you got a contest or something? Yep, $10,000 and free windows and doors. Are you a homeowner? Yeah, but my windows are good. How old is your home? Really not interested, but thanks. Are your al- windows aluminum or vinyl? I'm not. He shook his head and he walked away. My trainer sidled up to me. We don't curse. Huh? You said shit. I did? Oh, uh, sorry. And you need to get him talking about the three pain points. You let him off the hook way too easy. When I was in college, I took one summer to come home to Kansas. I got a job as a telemarketing sales representative for a company selling Amico multi-cards to old people who didn't need them. Cold calls based on cursory interest. Someone signed up for information and took a survey, and now we're in the system. And then we get a call, be strong-armed into getting the card with all the padded-on fees and inflated interest rates with which these sorts of cards are loaded up. There's a script filled with pages of rebuttals, the built-in responses to any objection someone might have for denying the rep a sale. And I, motherfucker, I was relentless. I never took no for an answer. I mean, I was really good at it. So good that a month into my summer, I was prompted to, I was promoted, not prompted, but promoted to floor manager, running around, checking other reps' phone calls and motivating them to close those sales. Go, go, go. The people on the other end of the calls were simply numbers to tally and a whiteboard in the front of the room. They were mostly lonely and really just wanted to talk to someone. And at first it was thrilling. I was setting company records every day. I was bringing home some bank. I got bonuses and my natural overachiever mentality was fed. But then one morning I woke up and realized I was an awful human being. I was pig shit in the disguise of a guy set to help these people by selling them something they didn't need or want. And I started to hate myself. I quit that afternoon and swore I would never do telemarketing again. 
33 years later, after moving to Las Vegas and discovering that my varied and substantial resume in Chicago meant next to nothing in this new money-driven town, my need for some work and some cash to pay the freight of living superseded that three-decade-long lesson. I mean, at least it wasn't phone sales, right? The position was listed as events representative, which sure sounded like something to do with events. You know, the cold splash of water in my face when coming to the, from the Midwest was that in the desert, events mean something almost completely different here. Here, events are simply designed to sell people things or get them married. This position, events representative, was standing in front of a table in the lobby of a gym or Ace Hardware in the rows of vendors at a street fair and selling them window replacements for $10 an hour plus commissions wearing a lime green or shocking pink nylon polo shirt. Hell, I needed the dough, so I bit. I noticed in the training an odd but predictable dichotomy. The training was designed to sell me on the idea that what I was doing was specifically not high-pressure sales. I mean, it was in bold writing, it said, told me that, Customers are not cold statistics. They are human beings with feelings and emotions like our own. Customers are people who bring us their wants. It is our job to fill those wants. Customers require trust, are respected, cared for, and delighted. On the other side of the training was the script. The Vimeos I had to watch were adamant that I follow the script verbatim. There were the five commitments required from each customer. There were the six key principles to keep at the front of every interaction, my favorite being control direction, timing, and conditions of each conversation. The script, with its pages of rebuttals and forced language, name, from what you've told me, you do know that you will have to replace some or all of these windows in the next couple of years, whether you want to or not, right? Was dripping with manipulation. It was no different than the multi-card script, except to be done in person rather than on the phone. I mean, the job was fine. My first few days of shadowing other sales rep, events reps, wasn't difficult, but the cues from everyone who'd been doing this for a while were in conflict with the training. No one really uses the script, I was told. Tell them what they need to hear. Push the appointment. This is all about getting those numbers up. A few were a bit more humane. I go with a soft sell. Trying to convince someone who doesn't want to even think about replacing their windows to do that is weird, so I just make conversation and try to gently guide them that way. In high school, the Wichita Arrows, the AAA ball team, needed a mascot. You know, one of those dudes in a giant fluffy costume whose sole job is to rally the crowd and get them pumped up? Except that the guy before me had stolen the Captain Arrow costume... They said they'd pay me 100 bucks a game, but I had to supply my own outfit. So I called together some masks and big shoes, whatever I could find, and went out to do the gig. No one was interested. I had beer bottles thrown at me. I was called every filthy name you can think of, and one woman, drunk on cheap beer in a horrifying life, tried to punch me out. It was a nightmare. After three games, I told them I couldn't do it anymore. They never paid me a dime. That's exactly what selling windows feels like to me. Now, that's all I mentioned, the three pain points. Here's a definition from the book of the three pain points. Three, but these are defined as locating using specific questions the problems people may be having that your product or service can rectify. 
I'm told that these are the key to quality sales. Building up a sense of urgency and solving these pain points is the skill required, and that sense of urgency is created through appealing to an emotional rather than pragmatic foundation. Let that sink in for a second. I was told that I had exactly the right personality for this. I'd, I'd been told that before. Outgoing, enthusiastic, dominating in some ways. Except for one thing. I hate being sold. I can't stand aggressive sales tactics. I don't want to be confronted on the street with a forced conversation that ultimately ends with a request for my time or money for almost, for almost anything. But the inauthenticity of that faux interaction is designed solely to separate me from dollars. Now, now I'm being paid to be one of these bullshit artists and wearing a fucking Dayglow polo shirt in public. I get it. Most of capitalism is driven by sales. Most sales are made by people selling things and ideas. The timeshare thing here in Vegas. The guy on the street corner with the spinning arrow sign trying to get you to come into the third tier mobile phone store. The kid with the box of candy to raise money for his basketball team. All some variation on the theme of nonstop, unwavering, hustling sales. The window replacement company, was, it was a good one. I mean, it really was actually good. The service was amazing. The warranty was amazing. The product is the best in the business. If I fucking wanted new windows, this was the place without any question. And when I spoke to someone in the field who wanted new windows and wanted to talk about it, it didn't feel like seeking or selling. It didn't feel like probing. It felt like helping, which was the first message of the training, Right. Unfortunately, replacing windows not generally in the top of the to-do list for most families. So 98% of the people walking by do not give a fuck and are annoyed when their time is invaded by some asshole trying to get them to stop and have a conversation about window problems. It was the day I spent in the lobby of a high-end gym that broke me. People coming and going with one singular purpose, to work out. I stood there smiling and announcing the $10,000 giveaway. No one, no one was interested. It felt like a setup, placing me in a place where failure was the only option and bothering people with a sales pitch, my only tool. I spoke to one guy about his workout, but as soon as I diverted it to Windows, he walked away. Not even an excuse me, I gotta go sort of thing, but it just stopped talking to simply fucking walk away. There was enough time in between waves of people that I, I really had time to float my perspective up and over myself and see what it was I was doing. I admire a good salesperson. Gary Yonker, David Raphael, Chris DeVita. All amazing verbal magicians with the built-in DNA designed to convince people of those three pain points, establish that sense of urgency, and close the deal. Raphael once told me that sales was like dating Tell them what they want to hear. Be the person they can trust and rely on. Have sex, then move on to the next one. I once dated like that, but it didn't really make me feel very good about myself. Felt empty. Felt sad to see people as merely a means to an end. Well, sales is a skill in manipulation, and I do not have the gene. I could probably learn, but the feeling I get when I try to steer a nice, normal conversation into a place where I control the direction, timing, and conditions of that dialogue is a quagmire of self-loathing. Perhaps it's the reason I'll always be an artist before a businessman. Perhaps it's why I'll never have a fat bank account. I guess I'm okay with that.
I went on some interviews for a fair number of higher-end gigs. I felt like they went well, but I never got the offer. I blanketed all of Las Vegas with applications to retail shops looking for part-time help, to hotels looking for management, which is a field I'm woefully uninformed in. One day I got a call from the manager of a hat shop located in the Grand Canal shops in the Venetian uh, Casino and Hotel. She was effervescent on the phone. I met with her and it turned out to be a fairly high-end hat shop. It was a nice hat. And it wasn't like, this wasn't like ball caps where you can get your fucking name stenciled on it. This was cowboy hats and fedoras and leather shit. It was really a gorgeous hat shop. And she and I clicked hard. She hired me on the spot. One of those interesting things where my Facebook presence was fun enough that instead of them being turned off, instead of her being turned off by things I'd written, she went, oh, he looks like fun and wanted to hire me based on that. So I got a call after that for an audition for a local solar power commercial. Dana and I'd submitted headshots to a local casting website when we got here. I mean, I did the the extra work for Chicago Med PD and... Uh, fire when I was in Chicago. So I thought, well, you know, I've got, I've got the headshot. Let's set it in. So we both did that. And so I got a call for audition. I went and I auditioned. And then I was called in to interview for an assistant hotel manager position at a casino hotel. It was a crazy fucking week. I got to tell you, I loved working at Chapel Hats. I mean, it wasn't challenging work, but it was fun and reinvigorated my love for a cool fucking hat. The Grand Canal shops are essentially a high-end mall with an actual Venetian canal, complete with gondolas and troubadours right there in the middle of the thing and then a casino and then the hotel. It was fair pay for the work. The staff, while young, were nice and competent. I loved Jackie, the manager. She was full of life and loved working with customers. I learned about trilbies and outback hats, short and wide brim fedoras. I learned how to stretch a hat and to brush a felt hat counterclockwise to clean it. I learned all about Panama hats, which were actually made in Ecuador. And you know there are two ways to tell that it's an actual, like a for real Panama hat, not a knockoff. Um, One is a burn mark inside. The other is the top knot. You don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway, on my second day of training, um, I received two calls. One was from the hotel casino. They didn't really like me much for the hotel management position, but they wanted me to come in and interview for the casino manager job instead. Well, just a few weeks before, Dana and I had been in uh, Rio, and we went to the free pool, and as we were walking through the casino, I just got this look on my face, and Dana said, you really love it, these casinos. And I went, yeah, I don't know. And what it reminded me of was the movie Silverado, and Kevin Klein's character in Silverado doesn't drink, but he really, or maybe did drink, but he, he, he just loves saloons. He talks about how much he loves being in saloons. And that's kind of how I feel about casinos. There's something about, I don't know, the lights and the noise and the people. And it doesn't, you know, a lot of people talk about how sad it is, but it's it, it doesn't seem sad to me. It seems like people are buying slices of hope. You know, I don't know. But they wanted me to come in for a casino manager. So, of course, I said, yeah. The second call was from the casting agency. I had been cast in the Solar Power commercial. I also got a cast-off hat from the shop for free, a pigskin ivy cap that is just badass. That was a great fucking day. Like I said, it turned out that while the management at Station Casinos didn't think I was a great fit for hotel, they thought I was a perfect fit for their casino, despite having no experience whatsoever in that field. Uh, my experience with teams, budgets, scheduling, combined with my nature, good nature and personality kind of sealed it for him. 
They offered me the job as one of three casino managers at the Wild Wild West Casino, a low-end older property that is part of the Station Casino's brand of off-street gaming hotels. Full-time, full salary, benefits, perks, and a huge ladder to climb from the small, older property to much larger, amazing casino hotels here in Las Vegas. I took the job. I had to take the job. I'd be crazy not to take the job. It bummed me out to call Jackie and let her know that I could not work. I'd only been working at the hat shop for a week. But I had to let her know that, no, I'd gotten this full-time position and I had to take it. And she was super thrilled. She was very, not, not crappy about it at all, super fun. So as I went and applied for all my licenses, my alcohol awareness card, my health card, my sheriff's card, my gaming license, it occurred to me that this was in some way exactly what I came here to do. Public school teacher, theater producer, director, public media director of events, casino manager. And it's bizarre Terry Gilliam way the path makes complete sense. It cost me my very last dime. If I wind up broke, well, I'll always remember that I had Peculiar Journeys is a storytelling podcast. For previous seasons, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or online at donhall.vegas slash podcast. To support Peculiar Journeys, please review the show on Apple Podcasts, share it with your friends or on social media, or go to patreon.com slash peculiarjourneys and become a VIP patron by tossing me a few bucks. Thanks for listening. Oh,